The Builders, the Dailim who created movements and shaped our world. Presented by Gedalia Gutenberg and Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. Herper in dem Moment, wie man sagt, oi, was für ein Kapore, dass ich von Claudius Reul, was für ein Schuss, dass ich. Der Mist ist der Dicke, was ich mich hatte. Ihr hört, also ich stehe auf der Lust. Kann ich mich auch jetzt hassen, dass ich freue mich mit dem Mist. Und was ist das in meiner? Was ist das? Welcome back, everyone, to The Builders, a podcast about the Gedolim who created movements and laid the foundations for the vast Torah world we know today. Welcome back to you, Rabbi Ephraim Zamgalinsky. And to you, my dear friend of Gedalia, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Gedalia, guten Tag. It's actually been too long since we sat up at the opposite ends of the table over here. Can I start with a riddle that I think is going to allow us to introduce the topic of today? Go ahead. So, how is it possible? that I stood in Ponovich three years before I first visited B'nai Brak, and I didn't learn a word. That's easy. You mean that's not a riddle? <laughs> you were in the town. Okay, fine. That doesn't qualify for a riddle. Okay, fine. But anyway, I recently found a photo of myself, 16 going on 17, in which I'm there before I go to between high school and yeshiva, Panovitz or something, however that... Uh, the name is kept till today? It's there, you look it up. You have to just spell it slightly. You know, Lithuanian is one of those lesser-known languages they speak somewhere in the Baltic. I don't know how many people in Lithuania, a million or a couple of million. It's not a very big country. And the names, you can just have to add stuff on and some A's and I's and S's and Y's and things. You'll get to it. And you'll get to it. And I have a picture there of the Panovich Yeshiva because unfortunately it was a bakery after the war. It was uh, 2002 or 2000, whatever it was, when I visited. And so, yes, I didn't learn a word. When I vis first visited Panovich, I didn't learn a word. And it wasn't in Bnebrak. It was in, unfortunately, this, uh, like much Eastern Europe, in this kind of, this graveyard. To What were you doing in Panovich? What was I doing in Panovich? We were on a tour between high school and yeshiva. With, uh, we spent a week going, and this was before Eastern Europe had, you know, there was a lot of money that flooded in eventually. But it was like, this was before... Still a third world. Very much, very much. I remember the border, one night crossing the border between... Belarus, and it may have been Lithuania. I mean, they share a border there. I think we'll get to that later. And I remember distinctly that they was, the border guards, probably on the, on the Belarusian side, were wearing these kind of Soviet greatcoats, these massive army things, and copying over. There was no power in the entire border crossing. There was no computers. Maybe there were no computers anyway. But I distinctly remember them watching them. I was fascinated as they copied in a ledger the names who were coming in and going out, literally on this kind of gigantic ledger Sitting there, it could have been, you know, you just needed a horse and wagon and then Ivan the wagon Things driver. Things haven't changed. Like, I'd like to go back and see if they changed, but probably it was pretty backward. So the builder we're going to discuss today, uh, of Yosef Shlomo Kahanaman, the great known to history as the Panovich Rav, and, and that was his Rabbonus in the latter part of his, his time in Eastern Europe. And it's made some interesting how that name, he became known as the Panovich Rav. And he started his, you know, this is totally out of order, Kedar Kinnabakodesh, But he started his Rabbonus actually just to compare, and I did a bit of poking around the Wikipedia just to see what we're discussing. Panovich today is a significant city, right? His Rabbonus started 10 years before he got to Panovich. His first Rabbonus was a young man he took over from his father-in-law in a place called Vij. Oh, that's unbelievable, Rabbi Galinsky. 
Now, hold on. If you know so, so where is Vidge? I guess it's something near Vilkomir, which was his father-in-law's other second Rabbanus. Who was his father? His father-in-law was a very chashva litvish godel by the name of Leib Vilkomir. I don't know what his real... Ari Leib Rubin, apparently. Oh, Ari Leib Rubin. Okay, his nickname was Leib Vilkomir. By the way, you'll probably get to it later. Rav Kahanaman had a certain like vision that he was going to build yeshivas that were destroyed in Europe. You'll get to that. Probably read about that. So that's why, besides Ponovich, he built Grodno also. Because Rav Kahanaman, at a certain point in his life, was the initiator of the yeshiva in Grodno during the First World War. And that yeshiva was destroyed in the war, in Second World War. And he promised that he would rebuild the yeshivas that were destroyed in Europe. And he built Grodno in Ashdod, which is still existing today. It's actually two yeshivas today, one in Ashdod and one in Beryakov. But it's interesting that the yeshiva Ktana of the Grodne in Ashdod is called Vilkomir. And why is that? Because that was a yeshiva, I guess, that he, his father-in-law had in his town of Rabbanus of Vilkomir. So I had literally no idea that he saw himself not just in terms of generally rebuilding, but building and rebuilding institutions, at least giving them their names. So his first Rabbanus was in Vidj. And I looked up Vidj, and Vidj is, you just had to put V-I-D-Z-H into Google, and there you come out in Wikipedia, it comes out with Vidges in, now in Belarus. But you know these Eastern European borders, they were Ahin and uh, Zurich, and they moved around. It's now in Belarus. You're going to hear a story from me soon, which is going to blow you away, okay, about his Rabbanus in Vidj, and about the fact that it was near the border. It's all going to be a kol kol or bakal bachaymer. So we had to move along at a nice clip here, because a lot of stories to get in over here, I think, and some analysis as well, by the way. But just to give you an idea of his first Rabbanus being in a place that even today in 2000, or 2014, according to Wikipedia, total population is 1,600. So this is by all definitions a kind of, I don't know whether it's grown or shrunk since then, but by any definition is a devil, a little, little town. Whereas 10 years later, when he became the Rav of the town, Ponovich, in which he's known by to, to tell the Ponovich Rav, the Rav of the town of Ponovich, Ponovich today, according to Wikipedia again, is, according to the census, is a population about 150,000, 160,000, the fifth largest city in Lithuania. Lithuania is not a large country. He's not known as the vidger of, you know, this speck on the map. He's known as something far more, and he was at a fairly young age. So, but what I want you to do is actually, you are the resident expert on a lot of things, but certainly on the Torah of the Torah world, yes, uh, accurate description, of the Torah world of Eretz Yisrael. The purpose of this series is actually to do something slightly different than is generally done with discussing Gedolim and the biographies, which is to do engineering terms, reverse engineering. Take, we're taking the vast Torah world we have today and we're trying to break it down into its constituent parts by examining it and saying, where did this come from? And what was the role of the handful of men who built this? Because it very much was a handful of people who built this after the Second World War. If we're looking at Eretz Yisrael today, where do we see the fingerprints? Where do we see the traces? of what the, the legacy of the Ponovich are. I really enjoyed what you did last time in the, in the podcast of Baron Kotler about trying to conceptualize like what was his contribution. And very nicely you described that the Teirolishma revolution was solely because of Baron Kotler. I was thinking, you know, when we were preparing this podcast about the Ponovich Rav, what was his uh, singular contribution to the Torah world? And you cannot say that he was the Rabban Kotler of Eretz Yisrael, because the concept of Torah Lishma existed in Eretz Yisrael way before the Panavish Rav came to Eretz Yisrael. Who'd put that on the map? I think it was a result of the fact that Eretz Yisrael, in the early years, we're talking about more than 100 years ago, 
the people who were coming here were people who came here at the later stages of their life. They would be supported by people in Chutzart. And their whole goal was to sit and learn here in Eretz Yisrael. There was the old Yeshiva of Yerushalayim, in other words, had no Rabbi Aaron Cutler problem. <laughs> That's it was, right. <laughs> it was no, no one said, they should, let's open a cannery for them. Exactly. <laughs> 100%. So that wasn't the contribution of the Pan of Israel. So I was trying to think, of what? Hold on, hold on. A note to listeners over here. If you've not, the reference to the cannery, you're going to have to go into the second episode of Aaron Cutler there. It is an extraordinary story. Back to the present or back to the, a different aspect of the past. So I was putting my mind to it. What was his contribution? So I came to the following uh, conclusion. And that is the one who opened Torah to the masses was the Pan of Israel. And I'll explain what I mean. When you're talking about the, the years after the state was formed, this is from 1948 uh, going on till today, what you had were the, was the yeshivas in Yushalayim. They were catered for the Yushalmi public, but they were virtually closed to anyone who lived either geographically or mentally in the Yishuv HaChadosh, meaning in the newly formed country, whatever you want to define that. Like the people coming in from Europe, the immigrants from Western Europe, from Eastern Europe, even some from America, very, very little. But the Moises in Yerushalayim were catering to Yerushalmi Eden. And by Yerushalmi, you don't just mean those who live in Rechavia. <laughs> no, no. I you, mean, mean, <laughs> you mean what is known as Tiltit Chalma, this, the, old, the old kaftan wearing... Whether it was Litvish or Chassidish. I mean, I remember when I first made Aliyah, this is uh, more than 40 years ago, I was shocked to learn that not everyone with a Shtarmel is a Chassid. <laughs> Correct. Do you, do you realize that? <laughs> the Americans who come here think everyone with a Shtarmel is, is a Chassid. That's not true. Rav Yashu wore Shtarmel. He was not a Chassid. Rav Zalman wore Shtarmel. He was not a Chassid. They were Prushim. Prushim are the Litvish Yerushalmin. Descended from the Talmudim of the Vilna Gun. And they wore Shtarmelach. And uh, you can see pictures of Rabbi Zalman, who was like the class example of the literature of Shashiva wearing a strimal in Yerushalayim when he came to be a Rosh Shiva here in Yerushalayim. But their world was, you said, a closed world. That was a closed world. Why? Right. right. So, because uh, the mentality, the mindset was totally different than anything that was coming in. What was that mindset? You mean just pre-modern, totally... Yeah. It's a whole different discussion. Maybe we'll have it one day, but it's a whole different... You have to understand the Yerushalayim, Yidin in Yerushalayim, they arrived here in Ertisol it was before the explosion of the Muslim movement, before the explosion of the Hasidic movement. It's a whole different brand, okay? You have to understand, anything that happened in the last 150 years in Europe, right? And there were Yushalman here before that. They've kind of preserved an earlier form. An earlier form, very interesting. Right? I think there's a lot of communities between that, but I'm not going to get into it now. Okay. But that was the fact. The yeshivas and the Moises in Shalim were virtually closed to anyone else. That's, that's, we're going to leave that for a from sociology podcast, which is at a later date. Okay. So what we're left with is that you had the Slabotke Chevron Yeshiva who arrived there in the 1920s. And I think even from an outsider, I think historically they were seen as outsiders, as modern. In Yushalayim, they were looked down at as uh, half Chiloinim even, you know. They used to walk around with gray or white hats and with shaven beards. And the Rabbi Yerushalayim, Rabbi Sefchaim Zanfel, was very makar of them. By the way, he married off his granddaughter to a Chevron Bacher, but the Kanoi Yerushalayim were angry at him for that. You know, they called them Karkafta Doleimanach Tfilin because they used to have these big chups and you can't wear Tfilin, right? You see pictures of people who later became Gdoyle Sol Mamish, who had these big chups. I knew one personally who was 
Tzadik Yisod Oilam, and they said he used to go to sleep on Shabbos with a net over his chub because he knew he couldn't brush his hair on Shabbos, right? So he didn't want to ruin his chub. Those pictures are indeed something. Right. So imagine the old Yerushalayim looking at these people arriving in Yerushalayim. They're going to ruin Yerushalayim. So at a certain point, they decided they're not going to make the yeshiva in Yerushalayim. They're going to make it in Hebron. And the end of that is uh, disastrous, as we know, because of the massacre right? massacre in 1929. Then there was no prayer anymore. And Ramosh Mordechai Epstein moved the yeshiva to Yerushalayim. However, however, even though it did cater to a different type of people, it was more uh, elitist, uh, is that the right word? Elitist? Elitist type of uh, institution. And I think it's... Hebron. Right, right. It's still like that till today. I mean, it's, it's not something that's open to the masses. It's a certain type of person, it's a type of families. It's a, it's a very, like, a closed world in its own. Now, the first major yeshiva, I mean, there was another yeshiva, Lomshen Patech Tikva, which was a Litvishi yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael before Panovich. I'm almost sure about that. But if you're talking about the masses, the masses were attracted to Ponovich. And the Ponovich Jarova came to Eretzisol, you'll probably reach it later on in the podcast. He came with this wild vision of building a mass yeshiva in Bnei Brak, and people thought he was off the wall. They thought he was affected by the war. They even brought him to a psychologist to check him out. Really? Yeah, it's a known story. It was printed in Mishpacha magazine a few weeks ago. And uh, I don't know if you saw this, but two yeshiva bachim who were stuck on somewhere in Bnei Brak, this is way, 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 way back. And they see, they didn't know what to do. They were looking for someone to tell them what to do. It was late, late at night. I think in Mishpacha magazine in English, they published a fascinating Then it must be true, story. by the way. If it's right, printed, right. Mishpacha, it must be. And uh, two yeshiva bachim who were stuck somewhere in Bnei Brak uh, in the middle of the night, and they were looking for someone to tell them how to get out of Bnei Brak or sleep somewhere. And uh, they couldn't find anyone. They saw like a flashlight an old-fashioned flashlight, like bobbing its way on a mountaintop, like a hilltop in Bnei Brak. And they're getting closer, and they see the Panevizhorov walking around. They ask him, what are you doing here? And like, middle of the night. So he says, you don't see? You don't see this gigantic dormitory that I'm going to build here? This gigantic besmedish for a thousand bachrim? They thought he was off the wall, right? And then later on, they came to visit him when the yeshiva was already active with hundreds of bachrim. And he says, oh, you were the ones who saw me. You thought I was crazy, right? So now I'm going to show you the real product of that dream that I had. So the Panamishra was actually the first one who really opened Torah to the masses in Eretz Yisrael. I think that, that was his great contribution. And from there is history. Now, the Torah map in Eretz Yisrael is actually probably split down in the middle between those yeshivas who emanated from Panovich. The yeshivas learned in Panovich and the Rebbein learned in Panovich. And those who learned in Hebron, and that's a simple example, okay? You have Hebron is still around today, and you have Ater Sisor of Raboch Motche who was like a prime Talmud in Hebron and the son-in-law of the Meshgiach, uh, Rabbi Meir Chodosh, his wife, which is Snifter uh, this week. So that's like a sub-yeshiva of Hebron. There's another yeshiva in Yerushalayim called Oral Chonon, which was founded by Rabbi Moshe Motche Chodosh, son of Rabbi Meir Chodosh, and of Simcha Wasserman in the name of his father. These are yeshivas which are like under that banner, okay? But then you have many other yeshivas like Beis Masesio in Bnei Brak, Or Yisol in Petach Tikva, all these people, these Russian yeshivas learned in Panovich. So that whole part of Olam comes from the Panovich side of the map. But he created that mass attraction to yeshivas. And you've said he was one who opened up the Torah to the masses. And I think for me, one thing that jumps out, and I think I'd like to get into in a minute, is this idea that is the concept that he was a visionary 
this combination of a visionary and a builder. And again, coming out, there's various strands that come out to you, even just stories that are well-known, when you put them together, you see this was a person with this kind of like incredible vision. And he himself was once asked, and you mentioned, you mentioned this, these Bachrim, we find, find him sort of, uh, uh, you know, going over this hillside in Bnei Brak, and they said, and another version of that has him saying, he said, you're a dreamer. He said, yeah, but I have my eyes wide open. And so I'd like to get into that. And in fact, in, in a minute, where that comes in, how that vision translated into, into a reality. back up a little bit about right from the beginning because we've started at the middle of at the end and we have to work backwards a bit. Uh, the Ponovich Shurov wasn't born the Ponovich Shurov. He was born 1888 in a place called Kol or Kul or something like that. Uh, I couldn't actually find it on Wikipedia. Actually, in the Olim Yeshivas, his nickname was Yoshe Koler or Kuler. Yoshe being Yosef Shlomer? Yosef Shlomer. His name was Yoshe Kuler or Yoshe Koler. Because Yosha could just be Yosef, right? But so I was just wondering myself, I saw, I saw that about the Yosha, and I was wondering if it was just a contraction. This was Yosef, Yosef, Yosef Shlomo. But anyway, he was born there, and his father was, I believe, it was a Chashvid himself. He was uh, in, terms of, in terms of leadership. And this is an interesting thing, the Rosh Hakal of the place, I don't know how big the place was. But again, once these things are in your genes, are in your blood, you know, people often follow their father, and father was a leader in some manner. It's perhaps not surprising. This place was near Tells. Now, that I did, I, I did Tells is there as in Tell. You know, the Tells as call it, they don't call it Tells, they Telsha. Because in Lithuanian, it's T-E-L-S-I-A-I or something. There's a bit of, after the Tells, there's an uh at the end or something like that. The Yeshiva in America, I think, is T-E-L-S-H-E. Right, so which preserves that, which preserves that uh, the, the thing. It wasn't purely Tells, outsiders know it. I think one of the remarkable things, uh, and I think uh, I'd like to hear more from you on this, is when he gets to the yeshiva, when he spends six and seven years in Tells under Laser Gordon, under Shemeshkop, and he shows a certain leadership and innovation and independence when he leads the famous Merida Musa, the Musa revolt. So let just, you know, this, this sounds very, very bad. Can you just tell us what, what a Musa revolt is? How do you go about fomenting a Musa revolution? Right, so I'll tell you the truth that Lately, I've uh, trying to build to myself a, a new perspective about this perspective. Perspective. It's interesting you asked me about that because lately I've been reading a lot about this issue about the Musur uh, revolt, and uh, actually I found a fascinating uh, chiddush in the biography of the Aruch Hashulchan that was found in the computer of the Reb Eitam Eitam Henkin Hashem Yikom Domay. Rabbi Henkin was a rabbi here, and it was, was he not? He wasn't actually a rabbi. He was a scholar, and he wrote many, many sefarim. So, you know, he's killed in a, some, a terrorist a attack. Terrorist attack. Him, his wife. He's a great grandson of Rav Henkin. Of, of his father was just Nifter uh, recently, Yudah Herzl Henkin. I remember them from childhood, from Givas Shol, Kiraz Moshe over there in that, that area. But he really grew uh, to become a very hush of a scholar, and he wrote beautiful, beautiful articles. And they found in his. Uh, Computer, it's a whole story how they managed to open up the password after he was killed. And someone came up with some crazy idea and they tried it out and the computer opened for them and they found tons of stuff that he was working on. And he was working on a biography on the Aruch HaShulchan 
And they put it out even though he didn't actually finish it, but there's so such a wealth of information over there. One of the things that comes out of that is we have the wrong perspective about the Muslim movement. Because we were born in a situation where Musa and Yeshivitz is, is a given, actually. Well, not so much today. You know, they <laughs> say right. the Tunuata Musa, the Muslim movement is everyone leaves. Right. <laughs> it's beginning Musa. <laughs> right. But, uh, but as an ideal. Mm-hmm. As an ideal, right. My original impression about the, the Muslim movement was, we all knew there was no machlokas about the Muslim movement. Everyone knew about that. But uh, I didn't realize the extent of the opposition to the Muslim movement from the G'dayle Ador. From within the world of the yeshivas. Or the Olam yeshivas. And not, not so much the Olam yeshivas, but the Olam Harabonas, really. Like the, the G'dayle Apoiskim in, in that generation, there was a serious opposition to the Muslim movement. Because Why? It was a Kiddush. It was taking time away from Limur Torah. And in some places, there was a lot of time taken away. Right, exactly. Nevada, et cetera, right? right? But, uh, but even taking an hour a day is taking away time, right? So, um, and we're talking about people who used to learn many hours a day Torah. It's not like uh, they saw Torah learning as, uh, just an example, like Rabbi Haim had this fantastic tradition in the Velozhin Yeshiva that he had uh, rotating... Uh, round the clock. Round the going clock th- learning, because he, he had, in the Sefer Nefesh Chaim, you see that if the world is void from Limerat Torah even for one minute, then the world collapses, right? I think they were also learning through, were they learning through Shas? The entire Shas was being... It could be, it could be all. had a, an interesting cycle. Anyway... So you try to imagine trying to impose Musr into such an environment. And, and it, it, was, it was a challenge and it wasn't so easy. And if you read that, that biography about the Aruch HaShulchan, this is what he claims is that the Aruch HaShulchan, since he had a personal relationship with the Navardaka. He was the Rav of Navardaka. He was the Rav of Navardaka. So he protected the Rabbi Yezel, the Alta of Navardaka, and the Muslim movement in general from the attacks of the other Paiskim at that generation. Just for an example, okay, the Kovnerov, the son of Rabbi Tzikal Khan Inspector, right? The Kovnerov, his, his name was Inspector, his name was Tzvihir Shrabinovich, he was the Yorish, he was the son of the Rabbi Tzikal Khan with a different name. He was on the forefront against the Tumas Muzar. So you mean this was a major controversy? It wasn't like Rishos Hans was Nifta, it was all settled. This was a major controversy that royal that split uh, the, the, the yeshiva world. And they, and so, so, so that's why some people think, you know, telling about the Ponovich Rav, that he was one of the leaders of the revolt, is Lashonara, right? Sounds Lashonara, yeah. right? No, it's not Lashonara because there so, was... But what actually happened? What? It foc- Did it focus on tells or it, within tells, the tells of yeshiva, it kind of... Probably in every, virtually every yeshiva that they tried to introduce Musa, there was a revolt. Yeah. In Slabotka, we know that there was a revolt, right? And that's why the yeshiva split at a certain point. We spoke about that in the previous part. In the context of tells, what happens? You have, he led a, he was a bacha and he led a revolt saying, I mean, what is it? Well, that's it. We're not learning Muslim. What did he do? He took the, the student body or some of them and he set up uh, in the, some clothes, some, 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 some type of shul, set up an alternative yeshiva. The Kiddush of that story is, it's fascinating that Blazer God on the yeshiva was a tremendous eye of Torah. Tremendous. He would go berserk. Like if he would find someone Someone steiging away, and he was—he had such a avas it was unbelievable. So the story goes that even though they were officially, I think, expelled from yeshiva, whatever it was, he was supporting them because he loved their learning, right? Even though they were go- they were working against him. So if you want to know the nitty gritty details of the Panavijerov's uh, that kufa in the life of the Panavijerov, there is a book that has been banned since then. It was bought out by the uh, the Panovich Rov's 
grandson, Rabbi Avram. Rabbi was his son. Rabbi Avram, the son. And uh, the, the legend goes... What time you mean he bought all the copies? Out. The copies. He bought out all the copies. The legend goes that instead of hiding them away somewhere in a safe, in a locked safe, he hide, hid them away in the machsan of the Oitzas farm in Panovich. In that way, in that manner, that was a uh, guarantee that every Bokhar in Panovich read the book about the Panovich Rav and his part in the revolt in Delft. <laughs> So this is the Contraband podcast. You get to see all the, you hear about all the books that were banned. That book was called Yochid Bedoira, I think. It's not a book, it's not a bad book about the Panovich Rav, but it was highlighting a certain period in his life which people didn't want people to know about. But I think today everyone knows that he was one of the leaders of the revolt. You have to understand one thing, Rav Dalia, that even the people who opposed the Tnus Musa at a certain point in their lives realized that they have to introduce Musa. I think that happened in the context of the Mir Yeshiva, right? They had their own revolt and then they brought in Musa because of, uh, because of uh, other, other behavior there. No, I was saying the Panovich Rav himself brought it. We know he brought in Rav Dessler. He brought in Rav Chatzkelevinstein. And you can't get every better Bali Musa than them. Right? That's interesting because you see, um, I think if you look at, f- slightly further along in his biography, you know, at age, I think, 19, uh, he, it, well, he went, he went to Nevadak. He went to, he learned under three years under, under the Chavetz Chaim and Radin. And at some stage, he spent time in Nevadak. Uh, but at age sort of 19, 20, he seems to have got, he got smicha from the Aruch HaShulchan in the last, you know, Rechil Mechil Epstein, uh, in the last months of his life. And in fact, that was his first rabbinical position because when the Aruch HaShulchan was nifta for a few months, he, he was asked to step in. So remarkably, um, uh, you know, he was having led the Musa revolt as, uh, as a, as a bocha. Um, the revolt that was defended, uh, you know, uh, on the other side of that revolt, in another location, Nevadik, was the was the Orcha Shulchan. He then slightly later went and got smicha from him. So, so, so I'm so, well. That gives you an idea, I think, of uh, as you're saying, it was it was a genuine machlokas by uh, you know there were two sides within. These were not you know uh, opposing sides of two different countries or two different uh, cultures cultures of Torah learning. It was a genuine machlokas that split the the Torah world of. Of uh, Lithuania, but if we if we we march on very quickly, I think we're going to get um, you know age twenty two marries Fega, the the daughter of Arle Bruben, Rav of Vidge, that, uh, that as as we mentioned moves on to his father and moves on. He takes his first rabbonus. And I have to tell you a story about that coup. Okay, so I must tell you how I got to, to hear this story. This is a story about a story, right? And I'm very proud of myself, Rav Dalia. I can see one of the highlights of my career as the editor of the Hebrew Kulmus was that when the, it was the 50th Yortzeit of the Panovich Rav, I had this grand dream that I wanted to implement. When I was growing up here in Ertisol, I used to hear stories of a legendary Baal Chesed who opened up his house to Mishalochim, to poor people in England. His name is the Tzaddik Rav Jackie Levison. If you ever heard of him, if you don't, you better find out about him. And... Uh, and everyone was telling me back then that he was the closest person to the Panovich Rav. And when they say closest, they mean closer than his own children. Right? The Panovich Rav established a relationship with Yaakov uh, uh, Levison. I don't want to call him his nickname. He deserves much more than that. And, um, and uh, Yaakov used to take him around when he used to come do fundraising in, in England. He's the Mamshim Vatel himself to all the Panavijarov's needs and just take him around to donors. And the Panavijarov once said that um, 
how can I pay back a Yankee? How can I pay back? I can't give him paying back money. What am I going to do to him? So I decided to make him my best friend. And, and because of that friendship, we have a wealth of information from the Panavish Rav. And my what did he mean, decide to make him his best friend? Meaning he would share he, with him? He, yeah, he would confide with him, right? So, um, so I, I had this dream. The, 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 the head of the rabbinical board in Hebrew Mishpacha is also a very close Talmud of the Panavish Rav. His name is Rav Nachem Koen Shlita. He's a Kenai Nahara. Okay, he's closing in on, on his 90s probably in a, in a year or two. And, uh, and I knew that they were friendly. Rabbi Yaakov Levison and uh, Rabbi Nachum Kayim were friends. I knew that. I knew that from, from the past. And I had this dream. I want to bring them together for an interview about the Panavizhrov for the 50 years. And, and we got them together. He, he had made Aliyah. Rabbi Yaakov made Aliyah since then. And he lives in Yerushalayim. And uh, we organized with great Tziyat Adishmaya. And we thought it was going to be like an hour interview like we usually do. And it ended up like, passing three hours. It was fascinating. This was three years ago because I'm just doing the maths. He was Nifta in 1969. So, so that's uh, 2019, right? So, uh, so I remember that my, my, the Hargosha that I, when I left the house was, uh, I wasn't leaving people who lived a year, uh, like a generation ago. We were hearing stories about the Panovich Rav's childhood. Okay? And hearing stories of Blazer Gordon. This, you can't have that. You can't attain that anywhere today. I mean, no one's going to tell you about Blazer Gordon today. Who knows of that? But since they had such a cashier with the Panavish Rav, so we were going back in history. It was almost unbelievable. So I must tell you this fascinating story, which had nothing to do with fundraising for Panovich. Okay? It's, it's just to give you a glimpse of who the Panovich Rav was. And I, I think we can, we can learn uh, Musar Haskell from, from, this, from this story. So he took over the Rabbanus of Vij from his father-in-law. And as you said, Vij is on the border somewhere, right? What is it bordering on? Lithuania, Belarus. Yeah, it sounds like. Probably. So it seems that in World War I, there was an ongoing battle between the German and the Russian armies uh, on, on that area. Okay? So at that specific period, he was the Rav, the Germans took over and, uh, and there was a, uh, a prison camp, right, in Vij that housed 3,000 Russian soldiers, okay? Among them, between 700 and 900 Yiddish soldiers, Jewish soldiers. And the Rav heard, like, what's going on there regarding food and things like that. So uh, he approached the commander, the German commander of, the, uh, of, the, of that prison, and he told him, I heard that you give out paches mikazayas bread to each prisoner a day. What do you mean? You starve them, in other words. Oh, right. So he says, you're starving them to death. So the, the commander says, yes, that's our plan because we don't have room for them. And we're just waiting until they die off. So uh, Panavizhrov realized that he has to do something about it. Okay, now listen, to this. This, is, this is not conventional, right, ways of dealing with things, okay? The Panavizhrov had an acquaintance, a German acquaintance who was high up there in that, I don't know what job he had. I, he was not in the army, but he was probably influential in that in, in German circles in Vij. And he used to play chess with him. Mm -hmm. Every night. The Panovich Rav used to play... Yeah, used to play chess. What was the idea of playing chess with him? Because he had to know 
what was going on in the on the border, like the the the, the war war situation. He wanted to know what was going on. He had achrayis on his kehila, and uh, and he had that was a way to access exactly the access information. So uh, so while they're playing chess, this German uh, official, whatever you want to call him, he tells the point of view of listen, there is a shortage of wood in in Germany. Okay? And I, I'm guessing that if I managed to transport this, there were a lot of trees in that area of Vig, if I managed to transport that to Germany, I'm going to make a lot of money. But I don't have anyone to do it. I, I don't know how to chop down trees and I don't know how to transport trees. I don't know how to do it. You have anyone, do you know anyone who deals with these things? So the Panavi Jirov says, yes, I know someone. He's a yid in my community. But uh, he doesn't have the Kalim, he doesn't have horses, wagons. I mean, he has to have the, the, the conditions to do it. So the German said, you know, I'll take care of that and, uh, and let him work for me and we'll uh, split the... Uh, so the Panavizhrov said, okay, here there's a machlokis in the, in the versions of the story, okay? One version is the Panavizhrov says, no, 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 we're going to split into three, okay? You're going to get a third of the profit I'm going to get a third and the Yid is going to get a third, okay? The other version is that this, uh, the, this official, this German official met the Yid and they were settling on the profits and the German told the Yid, no, I want the Rav to be a third partner in this uh, thing, okay? So day by day, the Panovich Rav used to find out how much profit the German made in Germany for the wood that they transported to there. And based on that profit, I don't know if he took a loan, whatever it was, and he bribed the army, the, the prison guard to, to redeem one Yid. Out of these hundreds captured in the... In the... And he continued this for a long time and he redeemed all of them. 700 Yidin. And that was the, it wasn't the end of the story because we're going to hide 700 people who ran away from a uh, prison of war camp. Right. So he had to, he, he was talking Stadlonas in the nearby communities that the Jewish communities should be able to, uh, to accept them into their, into their uh, numbers and, and take care of them and be mefarnas them. That was another, another part of his, his job. But what's the Musa Haskell over here? Where would we stand in this, in this situation? We would give up at the outset. You're standing with 700, 900, what am I going to do with 900 uh, prisoners? And we would feel no uh, guilty conscience on that. Okay? What do you want us to do? But the Panovich Rav had it all planned out to do it little by little. That's the difference between a tzaddik and not a tzaddik. It's not the big things. visionary and a dreamer and the, the difference between them and how and how one goes on to implement, implement them and I think for me there's another story and it, as I say when you put enough of these things together you sort of get a picture of, of who he was there was much later in life so here goes there's a family this is my wife's family grandfather the Rothschilds from Zurich so one of them was had a close connection with the Panovich Rav Dr. Moshe Morsi 
Rothschild. Is he related to the one who founded the hospital in, in Bnei Brak? The one that he was the one who founded the hospital in Bnei Brak. Moshe Mosi Rothschild was the founder of the hospital in Bnei Brak. And how did he come to find the hospital in Bnei Brak? Because the Ponovich Sharov used to come, he used to make these massive fundraising swings through. I mean, there's almost nowhere he didn't pop up in. There's incredible places. He's, everyone's got a story. He was there. And he would come to Switzerland to fundraise. And what Jackie, Jackie, Jackie Levinson did in, in, in England, he did in, in Zurich. And he took him around. He drove around with him. That's how first. And in fact, it was, the part, it was on those, those, those long missions that he convinced, I'm not sure if I think, convinced him to move to, uh, convinced him to move to Bnei Brak. And I, if I'm not, I'm not mistaken, he said, well, it's time, you know, he was a doctor then. He was just a plain old doctor in Zurich. And he said, here we need the hospital in Bnei Brak. And so Bnei Brak's my now Yeshua hospital built by Dr. Moshe Rothschild, visionary of hospitals. Correct. He brought in a visionary, brought in a visionary, and 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 a builder brought in a builder. And and but what happened was the story. There's a famous story here about which comes through Mo, uh, Dr. Moshe Mosi Rothschild, and he he says they they used to they drove around they were driving around up more than Switzerland. I, I'm, I'm not clear on the details, and I have to just find this one out. And the basic details is uh, the Ponovich Rov at some stage says to this young Dr. Rothschild that it's time, you know, we can go to, we can, he wants to, he wants to go past Rome. Now, Switzerland has a border with Italy. I don't know, maybe they were collecting in Rome. I don't know the details. But he says he wants to go. He asked them to drive him there and they drove to the Arch of Titus, right? And it's still standing there um, in Rome, this monument to the, to the destruction of the base Hamikdash. Uh, you know, even just to have seen pictures of it, you see the reliefs, the, 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 the carvings on the, on, on the, of the menorah, and, and this incredible, incredible thing. And the Ponovich goes along there, they drive, they, they, drive, they drive up to, he gets out, and, he's, and he looks up at it, and looks up at this monument, and he says, we won. He says, Titus, you tried to destroy us, and here we are. He was literally collecting money for Yeshiva 2,000 years, 2,000 years later, and that was his thing. Why do I think connecting these two stories? Because only someone with this incredibly poetic neshama, right? This incredibly soaring soul, someone who can soar through history. He's going from the mundane of trying to desperately collect money for his yeshiva, right? In the post-war years. Um, um, uh, try, and it's, he wants to go, goes out of his way to go and talk to Titus uh, in, in Rome, right? You, that was the, that was for me the foundation of 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 who he was and his greatness. You see that unique personality. That correct. That 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 soaring visionary. Visionary is someone who either you know is just a dreamer, or a visionary is someone who can see things that other people don't see. Who can see things long before they exist. And for him, he was saying, "We've been Titos. We've been here for two thousand years." Torah is coming back to Eretz Yisrael. There's no question. He he's sort of swinging this lantern around this dark hillside in, on, the, on the dunes of uh, outskirts of, of Tel Aviv or, 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 or Yaffa or whatever it was in Bnei Brak. And he he said, Torah is going to make it here. There's no question. For him, as I say, that historical vision um, was what sets him apart. And, and just one more little fragment of a story in which you see again, not so much a historical vision, but that kind of poetic, that overflowing soul, that soaring, a very special uh, nature he had. And this is when he went uh, fam famously in, in a different context. He went out to, to the um, fields in Shmita. So Shmita, he went out to the fields of Chavetz Chaim and he just, what did he say? He said, he bent down to the floor. To the floor. He's he bent down to the ground and he said, and he said, listening. Listen. And what, what did he say? He says, Eretz Yisrael is like, uh, it's, uh, 
is expressing gratitude that uh, they're they're keeping the mitzvahs once again in it. So Yiddish. Uh, and was it him who said that they, it says good Shabbos? He said good Shabbos to Eretz Yisrael to good Shabbos because because he said that Eretz Yisrael is 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 resting is is, is Shmita, the land is resting again. You, there are you, pictures of that visit. Really, it's, it, I mean that is that is so that is so poetic and beautiful, and 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 to see he actually convinced them they were they were they didn't want to keep Shmita that year. That was the reason for the visit. It was a very difficult time for them. And he actually came out to convince them that uh, that Eretz Yisrael has been waiting for so many years for for you to come back, and he, he was mechazik them to to keep Shemitah that year as well. And 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 you see, that was the unique combination. There are poets, there are thinkers, there are dreamers. But where do you find that rolled up with somebody who is such an an activist, a doer, a, someone who can who can play the combination of these two things? Usually, that that you know, you have an askin, right? We don't expect the askin to be uh, someone who's uh, who has that type of a soul. Yeah, and 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 um, just just to finish with this, we have we have. Uh, um, remember the context. The context was this was secular Israel, right? This secularism was so strong then, and the wave of the future seemed to be Israeli secularism. Uh, uh, and 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 he was the one under the, the you know under the power of the of the Mapai Party, which was Ben Gur, you know Ben Gurion's uh, party. He was the one who was able to come along and say, no, 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 we've been here for a couple of thousand years. We're coming back. You know, as the Torah has come back to Eretz Yisrael, it will happen here. And with that kind of lofty vision and the ability he actually to, managed yeah. to bring them along to help him bring who the the the, the, the mapai and mapam there's a famous story about him bringing the president Yitzhak ben Tzvi with his wife to visit at a Hanukkah Sapais or something and the Kanoim Yushalayim were were going crazy about that you know taking the the official like uh, representative of the Israeli government and they came to the Chazanish the Chazanish says don't start up with the Panavishurab. Yeah. And just, I think that that's, that, that is to, you know, if you go and visit the, the, the yeshiva that he built, you see on the, you see on Yom Atzmut on the Independence Day, you see the flag, you see the flag flying. Um, and, 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 for, and, and part of what he actually wrote to, 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 to Ben Gurion, in the later stage, he was involved in the question of Miu Yehudi, who is this controversy, who is a Jew. And he wrote, he wrote, he wrote these incredibly stirring words, which are worth quoting, I think. In which I don't think it was just a, a diplomatic letter. It was something a, a core belief of his. He says the the, the, the return to the return to to to, to Zion and the return to Eretz Yisrael and our generation has to be has to be seen in the light of the Hashkoch Elyonis, this this tremendous divine plan. And who like you? He says he writes to Ben Gurion, the captain who stands on the, uh, the, the you know the deck of the ship, the wheelhouse, steering the ship of state, sees who but you cannot can help seeing. The nissim nissim and everything about about this thing, and and I think that that encapsulates for me this this poetry and the the mixture of poetry and diplomacy, soaring vision and practicality that was the greatness, obviously with, with tremendous Torah greatness of the Panavishra of Yitzchak Shlomo Thank you, Abdali. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you.